Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Now, as we always do on a Monday, it's time to look back at uh, some of the stories from the weekend. Today, we're joined by Orla Ryan, news correspondent with the Journal.ie and creator of the podcast Redacted Lives. Orla, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Tell us about Redacted Lives. Yes, so Redacted Lives is a six-part documentary series um, that myself and a couple of my colleagues at the Journal have been working on for the past year. So it tells the story of people who pass through mother and baby institutions, mainly as mothers, but also some people who pass through as children and ended up being adopted or in industrial schools. So it's looking at, I suppose, their path of how they ended up in these institutions, what happened while they were inside the institutions, and in many cases, their ongoing search decades later for their children or their parents. Yeah, and a lot of these stories, are they unresolved? Many are still unresolved. I know some mothers who are 50 years later still looking for their children. So it's it's a very emotive thing. Obviously, mother and baby homes have been in the news a huge amount in the last two years. In January 2021, the Commission of Investigation released their final report. And a lot of experts, academics and people who passed through the system were kind of shocked by a lot of the findings. You know, it found little or no evidence of things like forced incarceration, forced adoption, discrimination, mm. despite hundreds of people going to the Commission to explain, you know, that all of these things had actually happened to them. So I suppose what we're trying to do with this podcast in some small way is give a number of these survivors their voice back so they can retell their stories of what happened to them in these institutions. Yeah, and and in putting these together, were you able to fill in any of the gaps for them at all? I suppose um, going through the report myself as someone who's invested in it and that I've developed relationships with a lot of the survivors, but also one step removed because I'm not directly affected. I think I even was shocked reading some of the findings. So I know through speaking to survivors, they were really deeply hurt and upset by what was contained in the findings. They thought they were finally going to be listened to. And essentially, a lot of their evidence was disregarded by the commission because the commission gathered evidence via two committees, the investigation committee and the confidential committee. Most people were funneled into the confidential committee, which was not kind of a legally binding thing. The investigation committee was more like giving evidence to uh, in a court where you were rigorously cross-examined and you had to swear an oath and all the rest of it. So most people didn't realise when they were giving the evidence, it wasn't going to be given the same weight and was kind of going to be sort of siloed off into a separate section of the overall report, but not used to help, you know, find the the, the conclusions that the commission Mm. came to. So I suppose it's been known for a couple of years, for many years really, but particularly since the final report came out that a lot of people are unhappy with the contents of that. So I suppose the the podcast, there's six episodes we go through, you know, we go through what happened in Tume and how that kind of, I suppose, brought into the public consciousness for the first time of a lot of Irish people what actually happened in these institutions and, and the sheer scale of the level of death, particularly among children, was deeply shocking to a lot of people. And I think that opened the door for a lot of um, women, in particular mothers, to come forward and say, you know, either my child was taken or my child died or I'm now 70 and I've been looking for my child for the last 50 years my signature was forged I did not give my baby away and I haven't seen them in 40 or 50 years so I think the podcast is trying to I suppose put the ball back in their court and giving them you know their voices back so they can tell what really happened to them Mm. There must be a lot of these people must be permanently scarred by these. Or I, or I imagine, in fact, all of them were permanently scarred by these experiences. I think, yeah, it affects everybody in different ways. It's something you never get over. Um, but one thing that I have kind of found quite hopeful throughout this process, um, I was speaking to one of the women last week and the difference I've seen in her personally over the last two years, how much stronger she feels now. And she said to me that part of that is 
the reclaiming of her voice and I'm not trying to take credit for that mm-hmm. but she said more more publicly the fact that lots of other mothers like her are now going public through all sorts of different mediums and are saying this is what happened to me and you know she'd ha- she's had relatives and other people in her life who walked away from her 40 years ago who've kind of now come to her and said I'm sorry we were wrong we should have supported you then and if it happened now you know to one of my daughters or to someone mm-hmm. I know she'd have all the support in the world so while some people are, you know, they're scared and they will be forever because you can't get over the loss of a child. They're, a lot of people are getting stronger and they're feeling like, yes, nothing, nothing can undo what was done to me. Nothing can give me my child back. But I'm finally telling my truth and that's giving me some, you know, it's cathartic at least, if nothing else. Did any of the mothers you spoke to, were they still holding out hope that they might somehow miraculously reconnect with the child? A number of them are, yeah. In fact, all of them who haven't reconnected all say to me very directly, I will meet my child, I will meet my son, I will meet my daughter, I know I will. And if I don't have long enough to build a relationship, all of the women I spoke to went on to have other children. So they hope that at least their other children will reconnect with their sibling. But they're all very much of the mindset of, yes, I will meet my child one day and I won't give up until I do. Yeah. But they, did they even know how they how they would go about doing that? I suppose some of the women have made contact over the years or attempted to make contact. And in some cases, the child has said they don't want to know. Mm. Um, you know, there's also the issue of many children who were adopted um, or sent to industrial schools. They were in some cases told lies about their mother. They were told, oh, you were abandoned or your mother you know, um, was it a drug addict or whatever might have been and, and she didn't want you. All of these things that, you know, just weren't true. So sometimes these children now, adults, have this view of their mother that's not quite correct. And also, as, as some of the mothers have said, they're very aware of, you know, it was a baby that was taken from them. But you're now dealing with 40 or 50 year old adults who have their own mind and may say, actually, I'm very happy in my own life. I don't want to invite in potentially, you know, trouble or drama or mm, upset my yeah. adoptive parents, for example. So, you know, it's, I guess it's a, it's a two-way street of uh, some of them have reached out and been told, no, I don't want to know. But in some cases, that was maybe 10 or 20 years ago. So they're getting to the stage again now of I'm going to try again. And maybe now with all of the talk in the media over the last two years, if an adoptive person, you know, thinks, God, you know, maybe my mum ended up in one of these institutions. Maybe she wanted to keep me, maybe... Now I see that there was another side to that story that even if I don't want to develop a close relationship or, you know, sometimes that can't happen for various reasons. I want to, you know, at least maybe share letters with her or maybe meet her once just so we both know what the other one looks like and then Mm. can go from there to see what might happen. Uh, Yeah, because you could you can imagine actually how an adopted, grown up now adopted Mm. person might go. Well, they, I was taken from this person, so they're completely scarred. Maybe it's not a good idea for them or for me to revisit that. And yeah, exactly. You can it, see the reluctance it's, it's there. very complicated. But yeah, there's all of the women I've spoken to who haven't yet reconnected still hold out hope. Yeah. Gosh, you'd hope they find some some degree of resolution in their lives going forward. Anyway, to look back at some of the uh, uh, stories uh, uh, from the weekend, I suppose Twitter is still a big thing and we will be talking about... Uh, what seems to be an inordinately complicated uh, process of joining Mastodon, uh, which apparently is the, the uh, uh, alternative to it. The, uh, now, Elon Musk is saying that you can't make jokes about Elon Musk, seems to be the gist yeah, of what he's no, doing. Now. Uh, you know, seemingly for a man who loves freedom of speech, he likes freedom of speech unless you're making fun of him, um, mm. apparently. So I was on Twitter just before we came on air there and there's um, a lot of uh, people saying things like, you know, he's giving off um, vibes of a substitute teacher losing control of the class. He came in about 10 days ago and said, comedy's now allowed on Twitter again. Um, And then we had this quite uh, funny trend over the weekend of a lot of... um, Muskrat was trending. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) 
Indeed it was. And a lot of people, including a lot of comedians, changed their profile picture to the picture that Musk has of himself as a young child. And, mm. and they kind of changed their handle so it would look like their account was Elon Musk. And we had people like Kathy Griffith, you know, she was saying, um, she was using the platform to say, oh, you should go out and vote Democrat in the midterms the next week. Um, we had Sarah Silverman who came out and basically said, um, I'm Elon Musk, I love freedom of speech and I eat duty for breakfast every day. So she shared a kind of a story in three parts where it was Musk saying Twitter or comedy is now allowed on Twitter again, her making fun of him and then her immediately having her account locked. So basically he said, unless it's very clear that it's a parody account, you can't, he says anybody's name, but it's really in reaction to people using his name and his likeness. But a lot of accounts do state that they are a parody account and they have still been locked until they remove the picture or the, the handle that infers that it's Elon even though when you're looking at these pages they're very clearly not Elon Musk I don't think anyone's confused by them uh-huh. because they probably have 30 followers anyway which in, would be a bit cases, of a tip off or a lot of the times it's you know it says Elon Musk when you click into the page you can see it's at Sarah K Silverman you know it's not Elon Musk it's clearly a comedian making fun of Elon Musk yeah do you think Twitter is doomed I don't know. I was thinking about this earlier and I'm going to listen to the slot on Mastodoon because I, I briefly opened it today and I said, this is confusing. I'm going to look at this later. Oh, yeah. It's totally confusing. <laughs> so I think as a journalist, it's vital to my work, but I don't think I would have it were I not a journalist, put it that way. So I'm going to wait for maybe to, to see if Mastodon takes off or what what is the alternative because there's really nothing quite not like really, Twitter. Not really, not as streamlined as that. No. no. The, it doesn't seem to be. Yeah, so because for all its faults, I think it's a brilliant platform in many ways in terms of if you do work in the media and you're sharing stories and information, it can be a great community space. But also on the other side of that, you know, you have just horrendous hate hate speech and it's not properly moderated. He's kind of saying like, I want freedom of speech and I want, you know, less moderation or moderation in a different way. But I don't really know how they moderate it currently because anytime I flag things that, you know, at least in my mind, are racist or sexist or transphobic, very often it comes back saying, oh, we've reviewed this and it doesn't breach any rules. Or, yeah, or, or yeah. it comes, why don't you just block them? Yeah, block uh, them. Yeah. Or, or it says it does breach rules, but then you go in and the person's page is still there. They've just deleted the one offending tweet, but there might be 20 other ones where they say similar things. So I don't know how moderating it less will help. Yeah. And you, I see now, I just checked there, you have a blue tick. I have a blue tick I as do. well. Did yeah. they, are they going to now, because I'm confused, are they going to now start sending us bills for that? It's not really clear if you already have one or you're going to be billed. It seems like this new Twitter blue thing is that if you don't have a blue tick, you can pay $8 a month to get one. But, you know, he's kind of saying, oh, well, that will democratise Twitter and democratise journalism. But, you know, if everyone has a blue tick, tick, what's the point of it? It it, it doesn't mean anything. And are they going to check whether you are who you say you are? Exactly. Somebody could sign up as Elon Musk and pay the red dollars. What what do you do then? And they were saying they were going to bring it in immediately, but now they've delayed it by a few days because the US midterms are happening this week. Because obviously I could, you know, start a new account and say that I'm Joe Biden and get a tick. There's nothing currently technically (laughs) stopping that and start tweeting things, you know what I mean? So they have delayed it until after the midterms because staff raised concerns of like, well, we've already been, you know, accused in the past of, you know, negatively influencing the impact of elections because of the amount of misinformation that's spread on the site. But he seems to think that by allowing all information, you know, that the good information will like Somehow, kind of cancel uh, out the bad it, information, yeah. but it's it's very questionable as to whether or not it'll work. Well, including information he's tweeted himself. Indeed. Uh, 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 in, well, he did delete it, but, you know, what a gob. Yeah. Uh, right, so uh, are you a fan of I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out Here? 
I'm not. I must say no, that I'm, I'm not. not I've never really watched it. I see clips on Gogglebox when I watch that, um, but I've never, I've never watched it, and I'm not going to watch Matt Hancock when he goes into the jungle. But uh, I just think it's bizarre that we live in a world now where the former Secretary of Health can be like, "Yeah, I'll go on." He's allegedly getting up to four hundred thousand pounds sterling to go in for whatever about two weeks, depending on when he gets voted yeah. out. But you know, given the fact that he's not the most liked man in Britain, he will probably be kept in for at least a little while and made eat various horrible things. Yeah. But he's also a serving MP. So he actually, I, I mean, I know it, he's, it used to be a minister, but he's actually representing a yeah. constituency. So seemingly he and was... And he's a, just fecked off. Yeah, he was waiting to see if he'd get a position in the cabinet. Rishi Sunak did not. And, you know, famously snubbed him. He walked by him the other day when he was shaking hands with everybody else. Didn't shake hands with Matt Hancock. Hancock didn't get a position in cabinet and then said, actually... You turn <laughs> I'm going to go into the jungle instead because I didn't get a position in cabinet. Um, a spokesperson for Matt Hancock came out and said, you know, it was very questionable again. It was like, oh, well, he's coming in to promote his dyslexia campaign because, uh, you know, he can reach millions of people every night. I'm like, yeah, that's definitely what he's, he's doing. He do. wants to promote yeah. his dyslexia campaign. It's nothing to do with the money. It's nothing to do with the fact that he will be out of a job one way or another the next time an election is called. But I think just to kind of, it's very disingenuous to say, oh, it's about promoting a dyslexia campaign. He also has, you know, an autobiography coming out in a few weeks, so it won't hurt again. But ah, he's, does he? Yeah, he there is, is a position to get rid of him. Isn't there? But there I, is, yeah. So um, probably it, just stoking the fire more than yeah. Anything. So basically, um, a group of. Um, uh, family members who've been bereaved by COVID. Obviously, a huge number of people died in the UK and a lot of it was under mm. uh, Matt Hancock's watch uh, when he was health secretary. So as of this morning, anyway, over 40,000 people had signed a petition online asking for ITV to reverse the decision, saying, you know, as much as we can laugh about it and be like, haha, he has to eat this disgusting thing uh, for families. It's very traumatising. Like, he's the man who oversaw, you know, a lot of measures that were introduced, um, you know, that... <laughs> not directly resulted in death necessarily, but obviously the way the UK handled COVID and Mm. the restrictions that came in, people were very unhappy with it. Um, A lot of survivors who've come out and who are behind this petition, their families in particular, their relatives died in in nursing homes and places like that, um, particularly in March and April 2020, when a lot of people were moved from hospitals into nursing homes and and similar institutions um, in the UK. Um, But they weren't kind of siloed off from other patients. So it's just basically COVID spread rampantly in the first couple of months of the pandemic. 11,000 people died in those particular settings. So a lot of those family members are now saying, you know, as much as we can say, oh, it's, you know, to make fun of him or we'll all laugh at him. It's kind of, we're not, we're promoting him and we're we're making into a quote unquote celebrity when he should be a politician and, you know, trying to work for his constituents rather than promoting himself. It says something pretty grim though about the state of British politics that someone can make that transition so easily. It does um, and it's kind of, it's a bit like, you know, I think since the Trump era we're kind of used to this sort of thing and there's always been a crossover between politics and celebrity but never quite to this extent. I think it's, you know, to have a, a serving MP go into I'm a celebrity kind of midway through his term is just bizarre that that's now normalised. Yeah. Orla, thanks a million for coming into us uh, uh, today. That was uh, Orla Ryan there uh, from the journal.ie. And the name of that podcast is Redacted Lives. Moncrief. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Weekdays at 2 p.m. on News Talk.